You know, there's something powerful about communion, really reflecting on what God has done for you and I. And that's one of the major themes in the book of Jonah, is recognizing that we have received the mercy of God and God has done it all, rescued us, found us when we were lost. And whether we're lost in our rebellion or lost in our religion, God seeks after us. So this morning we're going to take yet one more week of background on Jonah before we jump into verse by verse to understand the, the, the themes, the days, what was going on during Jonah's time. The question we want to ask this morning is this, why didn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Like what was he so angry about? Why was he so willing to risk his life, willing to risk his vocation as a prophet to disobey God? What did Jonah have against the mighty Nineveh? Well, let's look at that together. Now, Jonah chapter one, verse one, what does it say? Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amity, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, Nineveh is the capital city of of the Assyrian Empire, the enemies of Israel. So you'd think this would be like, I can't wait to go and cry out against it and say, you've been wicked and God's going to get you. But he doesn't. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Where does he go instead? Well, as we're going to see, Israel is here. (laughs) Here's where Jonah's at. And Nineveh's way over here. And instead, he gets on a boat and heads all the way to Tarshish, the farthest point in the world from where God told him to go. Why, though? Why? Well, we find out at the end of the book of Jonah. Therefore, Jonah says to God, I fled to Tarshish, for I know that, here's his reason, I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God slow to anger, and abundant loving kindness, and you relent from doing harm. What are we learning here? Jonah was scared that God would forgive his enemies. Jonah, the reason he didn't go to Nineveh, he was afraid God would be too merciful, too kind, and forgive his enemies. And he didn't want to live in a world that God forgave those evil Ninevites. That's why he didn't go. I think that's what a lot of us do. We have a tendency to excuse ourselves of the same behavior that we condemn other people. I do that, don't you? We want Nineveh to be judged for what they've done, but you know, there's good reasons why I I did what I did. And that's why he's able to condemn the evil of Nineveh while excusing the evil of the king he's serving, Jeroboam II. Now remember, we learned last week in 2 Kings, Jeroboam, the king he's serving, the king of his hometown, did evil in the sight of the Lord. So equally evil, but somehow the Ninevites are more evil than his king. He restored the territory. Jeroboam did some good stuff. According to the word of the Lord of Israel, spoken through Jonah. So Jonah saw the good things Jeroboam was doing, but excused the bad things, But with the Ninevites, he only saw pure evil. Now contrast that with Amos. Amos is another prophet prophesying during the same period of time. 
Now keep in mind that what happens here is we have King Solomon back in 970 BC. Around 790 BC, Jeroboam is the king of the north and Uzziah is the king of the south. Jonah is up in the north talking to Jeroboam and Amos is in the south talking to Uzziah. This is long before Assyria is going to conquer Israel, but they're still an enemy. And it's during this time that we have this conflict of ideas between Amos and Jonah. So Amos begins with a totally different perspective. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep uh, breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah in the south, and in the days of Jeroboam in the north, king of Israel, two years before God sends judgment with the earthquake. And what we're going to find out today is that Jonah and Amos are out of alignment in some way. And it speaks to this idea of why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. And it's because he didn't want God to forgive his enemies because he'd rather shake his finger at the Ninevites than look at his own issues in his own heart. So let's look at this principle together. What is it that Jonah does that you and I do? It's actually very simple. It's easier to point our finger across the room. Look at what they're doing. Look at what they did. I would never do that. I would never engage in that. It's easier to point our finger across the room than to look in the mirror and to see that we may be capable or doing the very things we're shaking our finger at. So today we're gonna look at three steps. Now those three steps are really three things we need to stop doing. Jonah can't see them, but there's three stops. And if we can stop these different patterns that we have in our life, we're going to experience an abundant kind of self-awareness, but also the ability to see our enemies the way God sees them. To be able to understand the mercy and the grace God's given us and extend that grace and mercy to people, especially people we don't like and especially people we don't agree with. So three stops. Let's look at the first stop together. Now our first stop is this. Stop (laughs) wagging that finger, right? Stop pointing your finger at other people when you might need to look at yourself. And this becomes really clear when you read the first chapter of the book of Amos. Now the words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa. Now this guy's a farmer and it comes out in his language which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, two years before that earthquake. So again, Tekoa was a farmland in southern Israel known as Judah. This is his hometown. This is his world. He's not used to the wealth and power of the northern kingdom, but God calls him to go up there and really call them to account. And he was raising sheep, right? He was a sheep herder. In fact, that area is where we end up finding Bethlehem many years later. And here he is. These are actual sheep from Bethlehem. And so imagine Amos with his sheep out in the fields in Bethlehem, suddenly hearing God say, I want you to go and deliver a message to my people. That they're so busy wagging their finger at the foreign nations who aren't living the way they should. They're not looking at their own heart and how they've begun to rebel against me. So again, it kind of reminds you of the idea in the Bible that we, like sheep, have gone astray. And so here, God picks the perfect person as the counterpart to Jonah to come and say, sheep always end up in a ditch. And you, my people, Israel, have ended up in a ditch. And I need to help guide you or call you back to account. 
But the reason they couldn't see it is the reason you and I can't see it. They're so busy looking at everybody else's problems, they can't see their own. So that's the idea here. Now keep in mind, God's gonna grab their attention. There's an earthquake coming two years from now to shake them up and say, listen, you didn't take my warnings. And Amos tells us, kind of like I I told them two years before that judgment, they needed to look in the mirror. Now a little little background here. So if you think about Israel set on its side, southern Judah is down in the southern section, Israel's in the northern section. So here's our prophet Amos. He's going to leave Tekoa, he's going to head up to the north, and he's going to stop at this giant temple known in Bethel. Think of this like the biggest church they have in the northern kingdom. And it's here in Bethel he's going to start saying, guys, you're not obeying God. You're not following his leading. You're so busy condemning the nations around you that you're not looking at your own problems. And he's going to confront the very king that Jonah was affirming, Jeroboam II, and what he was doing and what he was not doing. And Amos is going to say, God sent me from the sheep herders all the way up here to your hometown to let you know you like sheep, have gone astray. Now what he's going to do in the next chapter we're going to look at today is so fascinating in helping people stop pointing the finger at others. Here's what he's going to do. He starts off with a warning. The Lord roars from Zion. You see this farmer aspect. He's going to use farmer metaphors. You hear roaring of wolves and roaring of lions out in the fields. The Lord roars from Zion. Not from Nineveh. He's roaring from your place in your hometown. Something's wrong. And he utters his voice from Jerusalem. Guys, you're pointing your finger at everybody else. But from Jerusalem, God says there's a problem. The pastures of the shepherds, the leaders, those who influence other people, mourn. Again, here's a shepherd talking about shepherds mourning. He's saying, guys, as leaders, We should be mourning what's happening around us rather than waving our finger at the foreign nations and what they're doing wrong. We should be mourning what's happening in Zion. We should be mourning what's happening in Jerusalem. We're the shepherds and our sheep are going astray. Do you feel the shepherd's heart here? He goes on. And the top of Mount Carmel is withering. Our own world is withering because of how it's been leading. Now Amos is going to then take the next chapter and here's what he's going to do. It's fascinating. He's actually going to slowly condemn all the people they're condemning. Damascus, bad stuff. Yeah, that's right. Go get him, Amos. He's going to condemn Tyre. Yeah, thank you, Amos, for condemning Tyre and Amnon and Moab and Edom and Gaza. But he's slowly working his way like a bullseye. And the same condemnations that are applied to the foreign nations around them, he will slowly zoom in like a bullseye and say, And you and I and Judah and Israel are doing the same thing. And that's how he's going to bring conviction into them so they will stop pointing the finger at others. Now we all do this. In fact, I found myself doing this recently. I had a contractor at my house who was doing some work on my front steps. And so I came home one day and here's this guy, this big burly guy out working and doing concrete work. He's hot and he's sweaty in the middle of July and he's ripped his shirt off right in the middle of my neighborhood. And I'm like, what are you guys, you can't take your shirt off in my front yard where everybody's gonna see somebody? Now right now you're probably thinking to yourself, Chad, I can't believe you're condemning somebody who's just doing hard work. 
Stay with me. All right. All right. So I, I walk up and he's not only taken his shirt off, but he's hung his shirt over the light in my front yard. And his shirt was a Confederate flag. I'm like, oh my goodness, what? there's a Confederate flag flying in my front yard. I can't believe this guy. And this is right in July of 2020. And I am furious. I'm mad. I'm condemning him. This is insensitive. This is inappropriate. Now, do you still think I was crazy for condemning him? But stay with me. So I, I end up, I walk up and I see it's not really, a, it is a Confederate flag, but it's actually the Dukes of Hazards General Lee. He was wearing a shirt from the Dukes of Hazards, and so what was hanging on my front light was a Confederate flag, but it was actually the top of the General Lee's car. And then suddenly I remembered that ever since sixth grade, I was a big fan of the Dukes of Hazard. Now I was in sixth grade, I didn't appreciate all the insensitivities of the General Lee's ceiling, I just knew it had a cool horn. And I knew that uh, if you pulled up on the steering wheel, apparently that car could like jump over ramps. Here I am though, feeling so self-righteous, condemning this guy for taking off his shirt, being inappropriate in the neighborhood and having a Confederate flag in my neighborhood and making me look bad. And then I find out that what he's hanging on my front lawn was a favorite TV show I had when I was in fifth and sixth grade. And all of a sudden I went, oh, Maybe uh, I need to look at my own sensitivities and maybe I do need to get to off my front lawn. I do need to talk to him about this. But isn't it amazing how easy it was for me to condemn him and then find out that maybe it's something I need to look at myself. I think we all do that in different areas. We have a tendency to sit around and judging other people for what they do, what they say, what they think. And we never take the time to look at our own hearts and say, God, where am I impatient? Where am I insensitive? God, where am I practicing the very things I judge others for? I hate gossips and I gossip. I gossip about gossips. I lie about liars. I'm intolerant toward the intolerant. And I think the challenge here from Amos is you can condemn everybody around you, but be careful. Maybe you're practicing the very things that you're condemning. So stop pointing your finger and then we'll look at a second thing to stop. Stop using the scales of badness to establish your own goodness. What do I mean? (laughs) It's this tendency we all have to feel good about how good we're being by comparing it to the worst person we can think of, right? We might say, listen, I don't use power inappropriately because if we think of the worst person we've ever heard in history, at least I'm not Hitler, I may not be incredibly generous, but man, we think of the greediest person we've ever thought. I might not be a great dad or a great husband, but at least I'm not my grandpa, my uncle. There's this tendency we do that Jonah and Jeroboam did, which is we feel good about our own sins, our own waywardness, because we compare it to someone else's worst waywardness. That was certainly true in how Judah and Israel compared themselves to Nineveh. Now, archeologists have found that Nineveh has been rebuilt from its ruins. It's in modern day Iran and Iraq, and it was a powerful city that used its power for incredible cruelty. So imagine the power, the influence, and the culture, and the potential of this city 
and yet they used it to crush and torture their enemies. Now, a little bit about this city. It was built on the Tigris River with these massive walls that allowed it to protect itself and think it was invincible. And yet, it was a place of incredible cruelty. In fact, they find in these pictograms, or almost hieroglyphics, that they are proud of the fact that they tortured the people they came in contact with. Here's an example of them stretching the arms of one of their enemies by the hands and by the feet. And if we zoom in, what we'll see is they would actually yank off their jaws, yank it off. Sometimes, as I mentioned last week, put a hole in their, in their chin and put a rope through their mouth to string people like fish. So you can imagine whatever you're doing wrong. You compare yourself to the Ninevites, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Well, it's not just that. They also were people who spent money in ways that even the riches of Jeroboam couldn't compare to the way they were using their position and their power. Archaeologists have found this little city called Ziaret, right up here in modern day Turkey, some of the remnants of the Assyrian Empire. Just look at the stonework that they put together in these mosaics. They had this incredible stonework and culture that was shown even in their roads. Not only that, they had these massive pavers. It's an incredible thing just to have a, a, a road, let alone to have one with this type of, of, of pavery, right? And so it'd be easy to say, if you're in Nineveh, listen, we don't spend our money inappropriately. Have you seen how they spend money in Nineveh? constantly comparing their goodness, goodness, to Nineveh's badness. And that's our second stop. We gotta stop using these scales of badness. Now, with that in mind, we're gonna dive into chapter one here, and you're gonna see how he begins to just attack those nations around them to show that's exactly what they're doing. So again, what he's gonna do is take all the bad people that they're already condemning, And he's going to kind of pile on. He begins with Damascus. Damascus, he says, you used your power to hurt other people. And everybody in Judah is like, yeah. Everybody in Israel, that's right. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Because they have threshed Gilead, they've tortured Gilead with implements of iron. That's right. That's exactly what they did to us in Israel. But I will send a fire to the house of Heziel, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. And I will also break the gates of Bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And the one who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, the people of Syria shall go captive to curse as the Lord. Yes! Amos, you go get them. You tell them. That's exactly right. Those Damascus people are evil with their iron and their threshing of our people. Yeah, go punish them, God. Then Amos turns to the second nation surrounding them, Gaza. Gaza, you've been objectifying people. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Because, what did they do? They took captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. You took people, you objectified people, you used people. But I'm gonna send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitants 
from Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish. Yes, Amos, you tell them, you take them on. Those Gaza people have done terrible things to us all through history. It's about time. They're feeling very self-righteous, like waving the finger, feeling so good compared to the badness of these people. And Amos takes another swing. Amos says, now I wanna talk about a few other nations that you've been comparing yourselves to. How about Tyre? Tyre didn't keep her word. That's right, they broke their, their, their commitments. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they delivered up to the whole captivity to Edom. And they did not remember the covenant. See, they didn't keep their word. They did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. Tyre didn't keep its word. How about Edom? Edom took revenge and had no compassion on their enemies. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword. He cast off all pity, no compassion for his enemies. His anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. Revenge didn't forgive but I will send a fire upon Teman, which shall devour the passes of Basra. And then he takes one more swing at Amnon. See, Amnon was using people and loving things. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the people of Amnon and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. It's kind of like a song here, do you get this idea? Uh, because they ripped open the women with a child in Gilead and that they might enlarge their territory. They were willing to rip and destroy pregnant women in order to gain more land. Using people and loving things. That was the sin of Amnon. And it shall devour its palaces when I send that fire. Amid shouting in the day of battle and a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, their king shall go into captivity. He and his princes together, says the Lord. Now, if you're listening, you're thinking to yourself, that is right, those bad nations around me. And he finishes with Moab. Moab was not valuing people made in God's image. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions to Moab and for four, I will not turn away the punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. He burned it in their belief system so they wouldn't go into the afterlife. Rather than honoring them, it's made in God's image. But I will send a fire upon Moab. It will devour the palaces of Kerioth. Moab shall die with tumult and shouting and trumpet sound. And I will cut off the judge from its midst and slay all the princes with him, says the Lord. Now you remember our bullseye? He has addressed all these problems of all the surrounding nations. And Judah and Israel are thinking to themselves, that is right can't believe those people are doing those things. But he's just about to say, and all those things that you've condemned everyone around you for, you are guilty of the very things you condemn. How about you? How about me? Are we guilty of the very things we condemn? And the only reason we feel good about what we're doing is because we're comparing our goodness to someone else's badness. 
I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's in our men's ministry. And just about this tendency we all have to lie to ourselves, to practice the very things that we condemn in others. And one of the things he was noting um, is how helpful the men's ministry at Horizon has been. Ken Kington does it on Sunday nights um, with our men's program called Authentic Manhood. And there's one starting up here soon if you want to be part of it. But he was just sharing how powerful it was to have accountability and people to help check his blind spots. His particular one was lust. He said, you know, Chad, for years I kind of allowed my brain to entertain whatever I wanted. I don't want anyone lusting after my wife (laughs) or lusting after my daughter. But I figured as long as I didn't act on it with actual physical touch, you know, it was okay. You know, Jesus said it's not just do not commit adultery, right? Because that's what happens with lust in your mind. Scales of badness. At least I'm not committing actual adultery, just fantasizing. Jesus says when you've lusted after someone in your heart, you've committed adultery. He said as he began to be challenged in this men's ministry, he realized he needed to not uh, be open to the Holy Spirit's conviction when he was actually flirting physically or, or verbally, but he wanted to catch himself much earlier in the process. He said, I have an accountability partner now, and that accountability partner asks me every two weeks about my thought life. And he said, I will catch myself noticing someone who's not my wife. And even though I haven't acted on it, it may not even be romantic yet, but I'm noticing someone. And in noticing them, I begin to compare their strengths to my wife's weaknesses. That's how lust works. In fact, that's why it's a fantasy, right? When you're in a real relationship, you see that person's good and bad. When you fantasize someone, it may not be physical or sexual yet, but you begin to lean into someone and compare their strengths to your spouse's weaknesses. And so he was talking to me and saying, let me tell you, last week I had a couple of those. And God's beginning to convict me and help me see when I'm lusting in my heart beforehand and and the men's ministry and the Holy Spirit and my own fine-tuning my conscience to God, I'm beginning to see more purity in my life. I'm beginning to see more joy in my life as I'm pursuing God's way. It's just exciting to me because when I think about this day, I don't know if you know this is a big day in Horizon's life. It was 10 years ago, this weekend, the second weekend of January, we opened this building. We practiced the week before, but we said, don't invite your friends till today. And so it was 10 years ago today, we had built this building, we had created this space, we had an exploring service and equipping service, we had these connecting environments like our men's ministry and women's studies and Bible studies. We said, we want to create a space where people can find God's grace. Where you can know whatever you discover about yourself, I'm a liar, I'm a murderer in my own heart, I, I, I lust, I envy, I gossip. The environment we would create at Horizon would create a place that you could be open and honest with God and yourself and find that he would love you no matter what and empower you to get free. I mean, isn't that we all want freedom? I want freedom from these habits that I tell myself I don't want to keep doing, and yet I do. But God says the only way that we're going to get serious is to stop comparing our goodness to other people's badness and thinking, well, it really is kind of good. No. No, the bad news comes before the good news. The bad news is 
you're worse than you think, right? I mean, that's really what the Bible says. The bad news is you're worse than you think. The, the anger, the lusting in your own heart are just as serious to God as murder and adultery. But Jesus died on a cross to pay for it all. And because he did, you can bring all that bad stuff. Instead of trying to pretend it's not that bad, it's bad. And God loves me and he's forgiven it all. And there's no condemnation. So in that, he can draw you toward his spirit, his word to transform you from the inside out. That's why we do what we do as a church. We create environments to comfortably connect people to God through the Bible and a community of growing Christ followers so they can discover the grace of God that comes against self-righteousness and comes against our ability to point at other people or feel self-justified ourselves rather than looking in the mirror. In fact, that's our third stop. It's time for each one of us to stop by the mirror, (laughs) right? Stop by the mirror. It's the mirror of God's grace that allows us to look honestly at ourselves. And this is where Amos has now zoomed in and saying, time to talk about you. He starts with Judah in the south and Israel to the north. First, God's judgment on Judah. You'll notice the song and the pattern. And his premise is going to be, you do not love and obey my words. You're condemning the foreign nations. You know my words. You're my people. And you're not obeying them. And you're not following them. Look how he says it. For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Uh-oh. Dun, 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 dun. The mirror. Because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. But I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. See what's happening? He said, all those things you condemned, you're guilty of the same things. And punishment's gonna come to you if you don't repent. Stop worrying about other people needing to repent. It's time for you to repent. Oh, wow. And just as God predicted, about 40 or 50 years later, that's exactly what happened. In fact, archaeologists have found that the Assyrian Empire did come down into the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is, In 701 BC, Assyria attacks Israel 50 years after these warnings from Amos. In fact, here's some of the evidence in the the siege of Lachish. So you can see they created a siege wall to make their way up to just crush this area of Judah. But God waited 50 years for them to repent. God loves when people repent. He's willing to wait 50 years, half a century. But his people don't. They never stop by the mirror. Then he turns the turrets to Jeroboam up in northern Israel. Here's what he says. Israel, you think you're condemning Nineveh for what they do to people? You use people and you love things instead of loving people and using things. Thus says the Lord, notice the song, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver. You sell people made in mine image for money. And you exploit the poor just to get yourself a new pair of sandals. 
Yeah, but the Ninevites, they stretch people out. We're not talking about Nineveh anymore. We're talking about you. And this is Amos holding up the mirror and saying, stop pointing your finger across the room. It's time to look in the mirror and repent. It's time to say, what do I need to change? God, where am I broken? What do you want to do in me? And he again threatens his judgment's coming. He says, they pant after the dust of the earth. You prioritize dust that's going to be gone one day which is on the head of the poor, and you pervert the way of the humble, a man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. You guys are sharing women, you're exploiting women, there's sex trade going on. What you've done is an abomination. I don't care how bad the Ninevites are, you're exploiting people made in mine image. And you lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge, you drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. You're not even worshiping me, and I'm the one that rescued you during the time of the judges. I rescued you with the 10 plagues of Egypt, and yet, You've turned away from me. So how about for you and I? How do we have God's perspective on this idea? How do we see ourselves and other people God's way? Well, again, Amos brings up remembering what God's done for you. This is going to be exactly what God does to Jonah, and we jump into verse by verse next week. What he's going to say is, by looking in the mirror of God's grace, you're able to show mercy to your enemies. That's what's unique about the gospel. You know, every other religion and political philosophy says they are the problem, right? If people were less like them and more like me, we'd have a better nation, we'd have a better world, we'd have a better church, we'd have a better family. But the gospel challenges you and I to say, not they're the problem, but I'm the problem. And when you look into the mirror of God's grace, you realize he loves you and accepts you no matter what you've done. Because of that, you can say, wow, my good deeds are actually like filthy rags, and God's forgiven me. And as I look into the mirror of his grace, what he did on the cross for me, I'm able to then show mercy to my political enemies, like Nineveh was to Israel, to my religious enemies. Nineveh served different gods than the Israelites did. People who have different preferences than me. And what do we need in our nation more now than this kind of unbelievable, other-centered loving of our enemies. Our nation is more divided than ever, just like it was in Jonah's day. What if we didn't just tolerate people we disagree with? What if we just tolerate people who had a different opinion politically or religiously than us? What if we learned to receive and see the grace of God's mirror for us so we could show mercy and love, maybe even friendship, to our enemies. Look how Amos says it in chapter two, verse 10. He says this, it was I, God says, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. I'm the one that delivered you when you couldn't deliver yourself. I led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you Israel, says the Lord? Do you remember when you were in bondage? I delivered you, I found you, I was your Passover lamb. 
if you realize how gracious God's been to you when you were his enemy, if your bad deeds are so bad he had to die for you on a cross, you start saying, wow, in light of the mercy you've given me, God, I want to show the same mercy to my enemies, to those I disagree with. In fact, I was talking to a friend a couple years ago. He had this coworker that drove him crazy. He says, I know I'm not supposed to hate people, but I hate her. Every time she talks at the office, I'm like, oh, it just drives me crazy. She says stupid things. She says it in a stupid way. She says it in an annoying way, just so self-righteous. I just can't stand her. And then he began to read Jesus' words about loving your enemies. He began to see his own idiosyncrasies and his own rebellion in view of God's forgiveness and said, all right, I'm going to, by obedience, begin to pray for this coworker. And he said he prayed for the coworker, and the next time he saw her, she was still irritating, she was still annoying. But as he continued to pray for her over the next six months, he said God began to change his heart. He began to see her not as an enemy, but as someone who needed some appreciation, some respect, some love. He said it took about a year, but God began to transform my heart towards somebody that I really was irritated with, annoyed, and, and hated. And I began to love her really genuinely, not romantically, but, but care about her as a human being. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in you and I. When we're able to see God's grace in the mirror, we then show mercy to our enemies. And wait till you see the fourth chapter of Jonah that we jump into next week. That's exactly what God says to Jonah. You see them as enemies and cruel, and they are. But I see them as 60,000 people in Nineveh who do not know their left hand from their right. What if we began to have compassion on our enemies the same way God has compassion on us? And on that note, this has been a challenging week in our nation. I'd like to pray for our nation that God would just get a hold of each one of us, that we would demonstrate the kind of love for our enemies, people of differing opinions, religiously or otherwise, that we learn to truly love people who are unlike us and pray that our nation would have God's grace upon it during this challenging time. Will you pray with me? Father, it's been a difficult time in our country with people angry all the time, accusing all the time. God, will you just fill us with your humility individually and as a church? Will you bring protection around our country God, that we would see each other as neighbors and learn how to love our neighbor. God, you tell us the greatest commandments are to love God and love others. And we are not really good at either. Father, we need your help. And Father, I ask that you would bring peace into the city. You told Jeremiah, pray for peace of the city because it's peace will your peace. So Father, we pray for that kind of peace across our nation today and moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen.